following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. message today is entitled, The Danger of Assimilation. The Danger of Assimilation. I just googled assimilation. I found so much. Uh, Let me just pull one out for you. To consume and incorporate To make similar. To cause to resemble. To alter. To absorb. To assimilate. Google it and just see what you find. The research that was done by Focus on the Family. Extensive research demonstrated that there is no discernible difference between those who call themselves Christians in America and those who say they are unchurched. The only difference was there was a slight increase in divorce among those who called themselves Christians as compared to the pagans. I was shocked. I've been looking at the scriptures, this story of Joseph. In chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, verse 2, it says, this is the account of Jacob. And the next verse says, Joseph, a young man of 17. Why doesn't it say, this is the account of Joseph? Well, to understand, you have to broaden the horizon, look further, and understand that God moved in Abraham. He lived to be 180 years. God pulled Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. They stopped in Haran, which in the Hebrew means parched. He was told to come without his family, but he brought his whole family with him. He could not bear to separate himself from his family to go do what God had called him to do. It's not surprising. Our family and our extended family is often that which gives us support. We wouldn't know what to do if we weren't connected with our extended family. But God said, if you will come out, I will bless you. Well, God had a very specific agenda in mind. Nobody dreamed of it at that point. But Jesus intended to come and live among us and die on the cross. He needed to begin his family on the earth. You remember 
He destroyed the earth by a flood because the world had become so violent and so wicked, there was nothing good in it. And of course, many scholars believe the the great pyramids were built before the flood. And other landmarks, and now off the coast of Japan, they have found a great city. It was before the flood, off the coast of Florida, toward the Bahamas. They found another great city. Somewhere, Atlantis lies in the depths of the ocean. Well, the flood came, and now we have one family, and it quickly spreads, and Nimrod, the great hunter, exceedingly wicked. History tells us that he was executed by those righteous men of that day, but his wife cut his body up into little pieces and scattered it over the earth and said, now he has risen, and he became the sun god. And a whole history then grew up around this sun god both in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. In the midst of all of this wickedness that begins to flourish again, the Nephilim, we're told, was on the earth again. God had to start his family. And so he pulled Abraham out and Sarai, and she was barren. God always starts his work with barrenness. And with that barrenness, he always gives very specific promises. So he calls Abraham out, Isaac, the son of testimony, Jacob, the heel grabber, and suddenly he has the 12 children. But children don't remain children, they grow up. And these men were savages. These men, to look at them and say, could God start his family on the earth out of these wicked men? We would say no. They were bitter. They were angry. They were fighting with each other. They went to Shechem and killed all of the men in the whole city, took all of their livestock and ran, took all of the women and made them slaves. God's going to take this group of people and do something with them? Sometimes you think you're hopeless? Try these 12 men. That's hopeless. And so God had to take these 12 men And he had to begin to sanctify them. He had to begin to transform them into men who would be worthy to be his family. So how is he going to do that? Well, he has one young man who loves God with all of his heart. His name was Joseph. But he can't just take Joseph. He needs a family. Can I tell you today, if God has saved you, 
and changed you and transformed you. That's awesome. But God is much more interested in your family. He wants to change your whole family. He wants to redeem families. He wants to redeem cities. He wants to redeem nations. Not just you or not just me. And sometimes, please, can I be very honest? Sometimes we think life is about me. That I get what I want. That I have what I desire. I talked with one woman this last week. In fact, she was cutting my hair. And you can have some interesting conversations when somebody's cutting your hair. I said to her, what do you really want in life? And her answer stunned me. She said, I want enough money so I can live more comfortably. I said, you're telling me that all you want in life is to be comfortable. Yes! I said, and then you die? We all have to die, Pastor. So I just like to be comfortable while I'm taking this journey. Well, you can guess the rest of the conversation. This journey is not about being comfortable. It's about being holy. It's about being redeemed. It's about redeeming our families. It's about redeeming our city. It's about redeeming our nation. That's what God's business is about. He's a God of redemption. He's not trying to curse us. He's trying to bless us by drawing us into his heart. But not just us. It's not me-centered. One day, God will have his family. And that family will live in what is called the New Jerusalem, or heaven. And no sin and no darkness will enter that place. So let's look at how Jesus began to shape. And by the way, if you, if you question, the scriptures tell us in Colossians, the first chapter, in Hebrews, the first chapter, in, first, in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, that it was always Jesus in the Old Testament. The God we refer to who was the creator God, that was Jesus before he became a human person. Jesus was pre-existent. He is God. He is fully God. So now we have the young man, Joseph, because of Reuben's sin of committing adultery with his father's concubine, he loses the headship of the family, the birthright he loses. And Joseph receives the birthright. Because he's now given a robe that signifies that he is above his brothers in authority, And because he's 17 and he's trying to rule over hotshot brothers who are in their 20s, they're angry, they're bitter, and they finally sell him to the Ishmaelites. And to see how cold they are, they've pulled their brother up out of the cistern, they've thrown him into, and they sell him. But before they sell him, they decide they'll sit down and have dinner together. The brothers calling out 
asking to be delivered, asking to be rescued. They can hear his cries, and they're sitting and laughing and talking and eating. That's cold. That's no total lack of mercy. So he's taken to Egypt, and he was sold as a slave. Now, this was not an easy process. He was the honored young man of the family. But we're told in the book of Psalm, verse 17, 105, 17. Joseph sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. To what he foretold came to pass. Till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of his people set him free. So here's Joseph. He's sent to prison. And he's brought out finally on the marketplace. Do you understand they're going to strip him? They're going to take his shackles off. And men are going to come and poke and prod and force him to open his mouth. They're going to examine his teeth. They're going to check him all over. They're going to look at his muscles. And they're going to say, what is this man worth? How much are we going to pay for him? I just want to say, as an aside, have you ever heard of the slaves held in Morocco? The Irish the Caucasian, the Jewish, that whole crescent. Did you know that every people under the face of the sun has been imprisoned and made slaves? Today we hear much about black slavery. While that was going on, Irish slavery was also going on. Caucasian slavery was also going on. It's the wickedness of a man's heart to enslave another person. Joseph is finally sold. Potiphar buys him. Potiphar is in charge of the security detail for the most powerful man on the earth, the Pharaoh who is considered a god. You did not look at Pharaoh. When you were brought into his presence, the belief was that if you looked at Pharaoh, you would be consumed with fire. He was considered God. Potiphar was in charge of the security detail, as well as the prison, where they held all of the governmental prisoners. In chapter 39 the most amazing things begin to happen with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that he was taken from making bricks and was brought to take care of the plants? I don't know. But finally, he ends up in the household as a household slave. He is elevated. He is blessed by God. In the midst of the bitterness of his slavery, he is blessed by God. 
when his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph now takes over the family finances. He handles all of the household responsibilities. He's in charge of all the other slaves. But he is still a slave. Now, while he's in Egypt and he's a slave, what do you think is happening to the 11 brothers? You would think, well, they're just continuing what they've always been doing taking care of the sheep, running the family business. No. Underneath all of that, there was guilt that was bubbling. They remembered what they had done to their brother, to blood. And in that culture, you don't treat family that way. That is the absolute worst possible thing that could be done in that culture. To treat a family member that way was despicable. They can't tell their father. They have seen the sorrow of their father. They have listened to his tears. They've watched him moan. They've seen how it has affected his health. And slowly their heart is being pierced. Now Joseph is a handsome guy, well built, and Potiphar's wife sees him and thinks, here's a bit of candy for me. And she begins to go after him. And he's not interested. And the more he stays away from her, the more she tries to get him. And finally, one day when he goes into the house, there are no other servants close. She grabs him and says, come to bed with me. He refuses And he says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? God is testing this young man. He wants to know what his true character is. What would you have done in that situation? So now comes the accounting. Potiphar comes home. His wife tells the story of woe. And by the way, I'm certain that other servants have already told Potiphar what has been going on. He knows his wife. He would have known if Joseph had gone to bed with his wife. But now to keep his wife happy, he puts Joseph in prison. He has to do something with him. He has to show that he honors his wife. But had he believed his wife, he would have executed Joseph without a second thought. So now Joseph goes to prison. An innocent man. Have you ever suffered and you were innocent and nobody cares to listen to you? 
Nobody cares to understand that you're innocent. I don't know about you, but I was raised with a a high sense of what is fair and just. I can't tell you how many times I said to my mother or my father when I was a little boy, that's not fair. And when something's not fair, we're going to do something about it. We will get even. I was the youngest of three boys. I couldn't beat them up. Oh, but I found other very clever ways to get even. Ways that got them in trouble with mom and dad and let me skate free because I was the youngest and I was innocent and my smile told mom and dad I wouldn't do anything wrong. Oh, yeah. I can tell by some of your smiles, you've been accustomed also to evening the playing floor. Well, Joseph is in prison. He's not happy. He wants out. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all there was in the prison, and he made him responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And then two of Pharaoh's officers were sent to prison, the baker and the one who carried the cup of Pharaoh. They both had dreams. You can read them in the 40th chapter, but they don't understand the dreams. Joseph is to care for them. Now, it doesn't say this in the scripture, but knowing human nature, you could probably also guess that these two men were very haughty, filled with pride, and they probably treated Joseph like dirt because they were from the court of Pharaoh. And this was a Hebrew slave with no standing. Even in the jail, there are pecking orders. And these men were at the top of the pecking order. And Joseph was on the bottom because he wasn't even an Egyptian. He interprets the dreams for these men. One man is to be returned to Pharaoh's court and bear the cup. The other man is to be hung, impaled. Now Joseph does something that gets him into a great deal of trouble with God. He says, when you you are set free, remember me to Pharaoh, because I have done nothing wrong that I should be in this prison. Now's his chance to even up the score. He is going over his boss's head. And he's going straight to Pharaoh. And he's asking Pharaoh to deliver him. This gets him two more years in jail. Two more years. A total of seven years he serves. Hard time. Now, I want you to see something. The brothers 
and Joseph are being shaped into a family. And in that process, God has to first work on one person. Then through that one person, he will redeem a family. The fact that you're here says that God is working to redeem your life. And he's bringing prison into your life. He's bringing financial difficulty, or he's bringing health struggles, or he's bringing some other issue, a relationship issue. He's bringing something into your life that's causing you to be in crisis because he's trying to deal with you. And once he has you, his intention is to redeem your family. Now, if we don't short-circuit what God is trying to do in us, and if we will serve even in prison with joy, and not lower our hearts to bitterness or anger, but recognize that we are called to not turn away from God, but to let God do in our hearts whatever He needs to do to get us ready that He could redeem our family and that He could redeem our nation. Understand that nothing happens by chance. But God knows what He has to do in your life to shape you into the tool He can use for the redemption of other people. Now, some of us get it real quickly, and others, like me, it takes a long time. And God keeps me on that anvil, and He knows just where to apply the pressure. He knows just how to heighten the crisis. And sometimes I've seen people in crisis, and I have helped deliver them from that crisis out of my human love and kindness. And I've done them a great harm because then God has just had to create another crisis for them so that they could be tested fully and he could accomplish the work in their hearts. So on one side, I'm always wanting to help whomever I can help. On the other hand, I always say first, Lord, am I going to be interfering with you if I step into this? Because God has a blueprint for your heart and your life and he is working on that blueprint. And some of you, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I will. Some of you may just escape through the fire into heaven. And you'll never let God accomplish all that he wants to accomplish in the world through you. I remember Rochelle's husband. He was a wonderful man. He was a generous man. He was a kind man, but he was not a Christian man. And he would come to church on occasion, and he and I would talk after the service. But if I began to press him on his commitment to Jesus, he got squirrely. He didn't want to talk about it. And finally, when he came down with the Lou Gehrig's disease, and I would go and visit him at his home, we would talk about Jesus And we talk about the scripture and he could only take it for so long. And then he'd say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And he'd shut the door. I can't tell you how many times he shut the door in my face. and Just said, I don't want to talk about it. And finally, 
one day when I went to see him with my wife. His heart was open and we talked about Jesus. And he finally made the decision that he would accept the Lord Jesus as his Savior and that he would commit his heart fully to Jesus. And he did that day. He repented of his sin. He turned his heart to Jesus. And as we were leaving, I asked, is there anything I can go get for you? And yes, there was. He liked this. I don't know what it's called. It's ice cream, but it's ice. You know what I mean? The gelatin ice. Gelato. Italian ice. Some of you like it too. Well, I went to a store and I bought it with my wife and came back and gave it to him. And he was sitting at the table and he was enjoying that. And I left. And just a short time later, the call came from Rochelle saying, he wanted to go upstairs and lay down and rest, and and she offered to turn the television on for him, and he wanted the television on with the scripture running. And she called and said, I went up and found him, and he was gone. Well, today I am so grateful that he received Jesus Christ, he repented of his sins, and the family knows that he's with Jesus. What breaks my heart is that it took him his whole life to finally decide to serve Jesus. And so all of those years when he could have been winning his son, when he could have been influencing workmates, when he could have been a redemptive force because he was a very A-plus personality kind of guy. Everybody liked him. He was a leader. And had he given his heart to Christ, without all of that resistance, he would have been a powerful influence for the gospel. But instead, he just skated in under the edge. This happens to so many people that I talk with. This last week, one person so desired and and wanted a close experience with Jesus But then when I said to this person, oh, you're ready to go all the way with Jesus? Well, no. No, I'm not. A month ago I was, but today I'm not. And I said, oh, tell me, in the last month, did you dive back into sin? Yes. Don't want to talk about it. Okay, I'll pray for you. This person would have been frightened if they had known what I was going to pray for them. Lord, put them in a fire so hot that all of the sin melts away. Do whatever you have to do in their life to save them now that they can be used by your kingdom power for the redemption of other men and women. This is not just about us. There's a husband to save. There's an aunt. There's an uncle. There are kids There are so many who need the the work of God in their lives. But how will that work be done if God doesn't first take one of us and do it in us so that we can be a testimony and a witness that there is joy in our hearts, that the bitterness is gone, that we walk in the fullness of Jesus and we know what this walk is about. And so we pour out our lives for others. 
So God begins this desperate work in Joseph. And even though he was a righteous man, he had to be humbled. Do you understand? You can be a righteous person and desperately need the humbling hand of God on your heart. I think all of us by nature are filled with pride. And so God humbled him. Now here's the issue I need to deal with. God is in the process of creating a person that he can use for the work of the gospel. That's what God's agenda is. And if we waste all of our time fighting against his work in our heart, we may in the end be saved, but many will be lost because we were unavailable for them. Now I'm going to go ahead in the story. God was creating a womb in Egypt. A baby boy or baby girl, nine months in the womb. Is, am I right, ladies? Nine months in the womb, and the little one comes out. But when God births a family, or God births a nation, it may take much longer. And Egypt, God has chosen as the womb from which he will give birth a nation. Think about it just for a moment. The children of Israel, it's a family. There are 12 sons. There's mom and dad. There are concubines. And there are probably 300 servants. Now, they're close to Shechem. And the Shechemites say, why don't you join together with us? It'll be wonderful for business. And we'll prosper together. And you take our daughters as your son's wives and vice versa. Had they done that, they would have been assimilated into the culture of the Shechemites. And God would have had to have started all over. Do you know how many times God has had to start over? How many times has God had to start over in your life? God wants to put us in that birthing process like he put the Egyptians as a womb. In other words, these these family members would have been assimilated anywhere they went, except in Egypt. They were separate because Joseph provided for them in Egypt. And they were separate from the Egyptian population because at that point, Egyptians hated shepherds. They saw them as dirty. And if you've been around sheep very much, you know why they thought they were dirty. Because you can't be a shepherd and not stink sheep. And they, the Egyptian culture was very sophisticated. I mean, bring a farmer who's just come in from caring for the sheep. 
and put him in one of these chairs, and I'll guarantee you space will clear out around him. So God intentionally positioned his people where they were not a part of the Egyptian culture. And then as they began to grow and prosper, he put them into slavery. So now nobody wants them except to do the work. Nobody wants to be a slave with them. Moses escapes through a miraculous working of God. But now for 400 years, that's longer by far, double almost what America's been. They were not assimilated. They were slaves. They grew up in their own culture. So when they are birthed out of Egypt and God's mighty power comes and delivers them, and we'll talk about that soon, when God's mighty power came and delivered them, he sent a people into the desert And now he has to grow this people up and teach them a culture because they had no culture. They were ignorant. There was some education. There was some ability to read the Torah. There was some worship. There were some readings that they had available to them through Moses. But basically they were unsophisticated They were day laborers. They were slaves. And now God is going to give them a culture. He's going to give them rules to live by. He's going to give them laws to govern their behavior. He is going to shape them into a nation. Now, it's very fascinating to me that no one today reports in the news on the Philistines. Have you ever heard a news report on the Philistines or the Hittites or the Jebusites? No, they're gone. But the Israelites are still around. They were God's people. Today, the Israelites occupy the hottest geographic zone in the world. They are the center of every controversy that goes on in the world. And they're all Abraham's kids. Ishmael. Or the Ammonites. Descendants of of Lot. So, let's bring it now to the heart of the matter. The Lord God of heaven has every intention of bringing you into a place where you will completely surrender to him so that he can shape you into a redemptive tool in his hand. It may be for your children. This little gal cutting my hair, part of my conversation was, do you have kids? Yeah, 13 and 15. And one of them has a birthday today. Oh, What are you going to do for their birthday? Well, they only want to do one thing for their birthday. They want to shop. So my birthday gift is to take them shopping. Oh. How much money are you going to spend on them? Have you decided? Enough to keep them happy. I said, is that really just what you want for your kids? You want your kids to be happy? 
that's all I want, and I want to be comfortable keeping them happy. I said, I never tried to keep my kids happy. I tried to keep my kids holy. Have you considered trying to teach your children about holiness? What's that, Pastor? What is holiness? Come on. It's like we live among the Egyptians. Did you know that the scripture teaches that Jesus wants to save the Egyptians? That Jesus loves the Egyptians? They were the womb of his people. Our thoughts are not like the thoughts of Jesus. So he wants to call us out. He wants to separate us to himself. And this passage I shared last week, 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, beginning with verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, or the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Or if you look in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Or if you look with me over here in First Peter, the fourth chapter, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, Orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. God is in the process of separating you from the world. 
And he's bringing you into whatever circumstance he needs to, to get your attention. To shape you into an instrument in his hand that he can use for the redemption of your family. That he could use for the redemption of Washington, D.C., that he could use for the redemption of America. It has to start not with politics. It's obvious that the politics of America will never change until the people of America change. And that's going to happen one person at a time. And if you keep running back to the darkness and to pride and to your own American life, you will be assimilated into the world. My dad used to say with a smile, if you look like a duck, you act like a duck, you quack like a duck, you're a duck. If you look like the world, you act like the world, sound like the world, you're the world. You can make whatever claim you want to be a Christian. It's like the duck walking down the highway. I'm a car, I'm a car, I'm a car, until he gets hit by a car. Then he's a dead duck. It's that simple. There has to be a change. There has to be a transformation. And God is trying to bring you into circumstances where he can get a handle on your life to begin to shape you into the person he wants you to be, that you could be redemptive in the lives of others. But as soon as you just roll over and go to sleep on him, what can he do? If if he begins to speak to your heart about the bitterness and say, let it go, forgive them, and you say, Are you kidding? I hate them. I'm going to do what I have to do. If I get a chance, I'm going to cut them down. What? Or somebody says something to you that you don't like, and you come down on them with condemnation and bitterness and anger, and you give them a piece of your mind? You just threw off the handle of God. God wants to be able to get a hold of us. And many of us have been so slippery and so slick that God can't get a handle on us. He wants to change us into his likeness. So as you live this week in the presence of Jesus, understand and know whatever happens in your life, God's involved in some way. He's trying to get a hold of you. And he's trying to transform you. He's trying to give you birth into a new creature so that he can use you for the redemption of others. So this week, please, forget about yourself. Forget about yourself. And ask 
Who is God calling me to be redemptive to? Who is God calling me to pour my life out for? It may be your husband or your wife. It may be your children. It may be a place at work. It may be somebody you don't like at all. In fact, you can't stand them. And right now you're really angry with them. God's calling you to pour your heart out redemptively for that person. To make a change. Will you hear the Spirit call? Let's pray. Lord, all through the Scriptures, you keep calling us out of darkness into your light. You keep calling us to leave anger and bitterness and hate and walk into love and joy and peace. Lord, I don't understand why we hunker down so deeply into the pain of this world when you've called us to such joy in Jesus. Lord, I pray this week you'll give us the courage to let you birth us as a redemptive instrument for your glory, for the salvation of others. I pray in your holy name. Amen.
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Oh